0: to the where we started last week we discussed Shavuos last week just a one little supplement what we're discussing the difference between uh, the first month and the second month and the third month why the Torah was given on the third month whole concept of three reconciliation to create harmony and um, this is expressed by how we celebrate the holiday Pesach On Passover, you're not allowed to even have a crumb of bread. Bread is taboo. During the time period between Pesach and Shavuot, bread is permitted. During the holiday of Shavuot, the highlight of the holiday of Shavuot was the special sacrifice. It was called the two-breaded sacrifice, two breads. They would bring, besides the Musa, besides the regular sacrifice, additional sacrifice they would bring in every holiday, on the holiday of Shavuot, there a special sacrifice on top of that, which was a sacrifice that was brought together with the two breads. This was the only communal peace offering. All the peace offerings were private, individual, donations, uh, Thanksgiving offerings. Uh, but this was the only communal peace offering. This was the communal the offering of the two breads that came along with two breads. See, all the breads in the tabernacle and the temple were chala, were matzah. Were not challah. Cannot be leavened. It all matzah, like the weekly shoe bread, on the table, that was there constantly, that was changed every Shabbos. That was matzah. Actually, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was unleavened. The only Exception. Only two exceptions were the Thanksgiving offering, which was accompanied, the animal sacrifice was accompanied by 40, 40 um, breads. Ten of them were, were, were bread, leavened bread. The other 30 were really matzah-like, but this, ten of them were bread. But that was not. That came. That accompanied the Thanksgiving offering. But then the communal peace offering, the communal peace offering, was brought in the holiday of Shavuot. was brought together with the two breads, and they were both lifted up together, and that was the center. was called the Karvah Shtei Alechem, the sacrifice of the two breads, and it's this sacrifice that allowed the new wheat to be used in the temple. From that point on, they could use the the newly grown wheat for the temple. So, it's very strange because Shavuos is the climax of Pesach. God says, I'll take you out of Egypt, so you should serve me on the mountain. You're going to receive the Torah. I'm going to take you out of Egypt, and you're going to receive the Torah. So during Pesach, you're not allowed to even have a crumb of bread. Intermediate intermediary days, it's permitted. On the holiday of Shavuot, this becomes the highlight. This becomes the focus. Two breads, leavened bread. How do we get from here to there? It's two opposites. You start the holiday, bread is taboo. A drop of bread, a crumb of bread. We we clean, we scrub, we make sure not to even have a tiny drop of bread. And here, suddenly, bread becomes the whole focus. This is the mitzvah. This is the holiday. The sacrifice, the unique sacrifice of the holiday, the the sacrifice of the two breads. This is the, the whole point. When you start out, when we start out our service to Hashem, Pesach is the birth, the birth of the Jewish people, the birth of holiness, the birth of godliness. The emergence of a new people so the emergence of godliness bread which represents ego inflation ego interferes it gets in the way the ego has to be suppressed when you educate a child the children have to be pure pure and innocent there will be plenty of time for them to discover the challenges of the world later on. No parent will expose their children to danger, to negative influences, even though, listen, they're going to grow up one day and they're going to have to face it. So let me, uh, you know, let me park him in a rough neighborhood for the evening. Let, him get, let the child get used to reality. I mean, that parent would be arrested for child abuse. We make sure to protect our children, to feed them the best food and, in general, to protect them and shield them. To maintain their purity because they're so fragile. It's like a little plant. A little plant starts growing. You have to, it's so fragile. You have to be so delicate it's so careful. Just, just, just let it grow in peace. Make sure there's no worms and no bugs and nothing to harm them. It's not strong enough. The smallest thing, and i will knock, knock the plant out before it even starts. You have to, you have to slowly... So, when, you, when we're starting out, we're initiating our first path to holiness the birth of holiness, of godliness of the Jewish people, you have to protect and shield it, not even a crumb. after the Pesach experience now bread becomes permissible now you have to treat it with wariness but it becomes a something you can can start dealing with then when it comes to the holiday of Shavuos It actually becomes the mitzvah. Because when a person, when you reach a point that you become so egoless and in such a mature way that you completely internalize that, then ego just becomes another tool. I can use it like anything else. I can use it to my advantage. Just like a genuine leader. A leader, a king, is the ultimate ego. Yet a Jewish king, King David, the ultimate Jewish king, was completely humble. Only someone who's was completely humble, he could be king. Because he can utilize it. It's just a tool, like anything else. It's not defined by it. But if he doesn't have to run away from it. We discussed the idea of three, that when, when you have to run away from something, it means you're defined by it. The recovering alcoholic and the alcoholic are both two sides of the same coin. Because they're both, their lives evolved and are defined by alcohol, completely and totally. So even though externally they're 180 degrees apart, but really at the core, there hasn't been any core change. That's option number one or option number two. There is no third option. The Torah offers us a third option, where you don't have to run away, you don't have to escape, you don't have to run away from the materialistic world. You can engage in the world and transform it, and elevate it, and turn it into something else. Who says ego has to be ego? Arrogance. Ego could be strength, initiative, leadership um, you know, identifying with it totally, making it your own being proud of it owning it you know, taking a leadership position, becoming a partner with Hashem and creation, taking responsibility ego doesn't have to be arrogance and all the negatives that come with ego So only when a person achieves a core change, a core transformation, when you're so egoless, that ego is just another tool. That person could be king. That person has the ability to deal with it and to utilize it. And that's why the Torah was given on a mountain. Why was the Torah given on a mountain? Mount Sinai. After all, why was Mount Sinai chosen? Because Mount Sinai was the humblest of all the mountains, the smallest of all the mountains. The mountains had a big argument. Which mountain was God going to give the Torah? All the big mountains came and argued their case. Mount Sinai didn't even argue its case. Mount Sinai said, "I'm the smallest of all the mountains. Why would God even look at me?" And that's the mountain that God chose because of the, its humility. The humility—that's what appeals to God. the Question is, if God is looking for humility, He should have chosen the Dead Sea, the lowest point on Earth, <laughs> the biggest valley, the deepest valley. If you're looking for humility, then choose a valley. Why give a Torah and a mountain altogether? And that's the whole point. That's the whole point of Torah. That's the whole point of Mount Sinai. That mountain represents ego, yes. But it's only when there's been a core transformation. The Torah offers us a third option. When you're completely not defined by ego, then by materialism, then I don't have to escape. I don't have to run away. I don't have to become spiritual when my definition is Hashem then I can utilize everything, ego just becomes another tool tool for leadership, for strength initiative and that's the ideal that's why on Shavuot, the bread which before was poison during Pesach when we started this whole process was absolutely poison the bread becomes the whole mitzvah the sacrifice of the two breads, that becomes the highlight of the whole holiday. And that's why it says when Mashiach will come, all the sacrifices will be nullified with the exception of the Thanksgiving sacrifice, which again had the bread in it, unlike all the other sacrifices that only had matzah. Because when Mashiach will come, we won't have to run away. This world will become transformed. We'll become so connected with Hashem there'll be such a core change, a core transformation, that we'll be able to utilize everything in this world and utilize it for godliness. And this is the ultimate, this is the number three, what the number three represents, the third option. See, there's one thing, when we start out, when we initiate our service for Hashem, godliness is like something otherworldly, it's like, you know, we can understand the concept or hear a concept when we study Tanya for the first time or hear a Hasidic concept, hear a very deep profound godly concept it's like otherworldly, we're intrigued we're drawn to it, we're attracted to it, but it's so not our normal way of thinking it's so counterintuitive, it's not the way we naturally think then you reach the next level where you begin to digest and you begin to appreciate and begin to absorb and you begin to internalize this can't, it's, it, it's no longer f- so far into you. But even, even this is the second step, the step of the Sviris Omer, the Omer, the counting, when we educate ourselves and try to internalize Godliness, But even if we successfully internalize it and absorb it and relate to it and connect with it, yet, on some level, we sense that it's, it's something outside of me. It's not really... It's not my natural self. This is not something that I would come to, a realization that I would come to naturally and instinctively. It's my mind understands something that's really beyond me, that's infinite, that's really beyond my whole frame of reference, but I'm beginning to appreciate it, and I'm beginning to relate to it, and I'm beginning to connect with it. But it's still something other than me. It's not my natural self. It hasn't seeped into my bones yet. But then there comes a third level, which is the giving of the Torah. When the human mind merges with God's mind, and we become one with Hashem, when our mind starts thinking the way Hashem thinks, when naturally and instinctively our mind comes to the realization that this is is the most natural thing, this is reality, when your mind starts thinking along the same lines as God's mind, when your mind becomes think, looking at this world from a Torah point of view, the way God looks at this world from the inside out, and it becomes so natural and instinctive, and then there's been a complete merger in the finite and the infinite between the human and Hashem. And that's the third option. Then there's no need to escape. There's no need to run. There's no. There's, then even the material itself becomes holy and godly and it's a tool that you can use so this is why the Talmud places such an emphasis on the number three everything in the Torah is, a, is connected with three the third month and the given by Moshe was the third child who was from the third tribe and the Torah itself was divided into three and was given to a nation of three and was given on the third day after they separated from their wives and they started preparing themselves for the giving of the Torah because this is really captures the essence of what the Torah is about it's the third option so the three represents the ultimate merger, the ultimate unity, the ultimate expression of unity. When you can reconcile seeming opposites that are a contradiction with each other, ego and soul, and yet here they're totally reconciled. And ego just becomes a tool. And then it's something you can use and you don't have to run away from it. The Rebbe was, such a, was an example for that because you know we know that even in the early years, you know, the Rebbe was not happy when people took pictures of him, and this wasn't the Hasidic way, you know, Hasidic ways, you have to be very modest, and you're not into ego, and flattering yourself, you know, celebrity, and all of that, but later on, the Rebbe was like, on the contrary, he encouraged, in other words, when a person reaches such a level where you're so egoless, it, 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 it doesn't mean anything. So yeah, you want to use, if, it, if you can utilize it for good, if someone will see and be inspired to, to Judaism, someone will see a holy face, a godly face, and be inspired. I just heard the other day that they, someone did an experiment. A whole group of kids, like 20 kids, None of, from non-observant families. And, you know, and he, he took out a whole bunch of pictures of different rabbis. And one of them was a picture of the Rebbe, and they didn't know who the Rebbe was. And he said, could you pick out one picture in this group, one face, that really looks like a godly face to you? You know, really holy. And there was, there was pictures that looked apart with beards and, you know, serious faces. You know, the parts... Twenty out of twenty picked out one picture, (laughs) without even knowing who he was. Guess whose picture they picked? The Rebbe's picture. This is somewhere in the Midwest. It just happened a few weeks ago. This is an experiment. Someone tried. Not not knowing anything is, you know, regular Jewish kids who grew up without, due to no fault of their own, grew up without any exposure to anything. But when you see a godly face. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you don't have to know, you just know that, you know, these are like actors, that's you know, very nice in The Chosen, uh, they had a non who played the, the part of, uh, of a Rebbe you know, you, can, you play your part, you look the part but you can tell the difference, the McCoy, the real thing even these kids were able to point out right away 20 out of 20, that, that, this face and one of the kids says, you know, when I look at his face these were teenagers I can't sin. This <laughs> is a girl. As she looked at his face, you know, when you look at his face, you can't sin, or you don't want to sin. You know, it's like you know, she she got it. You see a holy face. You see a godly face. So when when a person reaches such a level that he's so egoless that if it's a, it's a tool, if taking if taking the Rebbe's picture is going to inspire a Jew to be more God fearing and to be more godly and to be able to overcome his struggles and his conflicts and fulfill his divine mission in life and. Feel connected. Right? Says, yeah, take my picture. I, you know, Only someone who's so not defined by it, it's so, it's so beyond that, he doesn't have to run and hide. Take it. You know, make him into a celebrity, make him into a celebrity. It, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't mean anything. Who becomes the king? The one who's most humble. It's the paradox. This is the ultimate paradox. This is the paradox of the Torah. It's a mountain and it's humble. That's the meaning of three. It's the paradox you can reconcile two opposites that's what three represents the ultimate paradox quantum mechanics you can square the circle why? because it's so undefined you're so truly undefined you're not this you're not particles you're not waves you're not material you're not spiritual you're not body you're not soul and you're not mystical you're not practical it's not, it's not rational not, it's beyond all these definitions because you're connected with Anoichi, I who am I, Hashem Himself, who's beyond any names and any definitions, and any descriptions. And therefore only God can reconcile two opposites. When you sow, so when you study Torah and you become, your mind merges with the infinite, you become so one with Hashem that your mind starts thinking the way Hashem thinks. And therefore you start looking at yourself and looking at the world from a Torah point of view, from a godly point of view. You start seeing the world with different lenses. You switch your glasses. Now you're looking at this world with divine lenses. You're looking at this world with godly lenses. When the Rebbe looks at this world, he sees a different world. When he looks at a Jew, he sees a different picture than we see. You start looking and seeing things from the inside out, from a whole different perspective, a whole different point of view. Then it becomes a different world. Then it becomes a Torah world. Then we have the power to change this world. So the Torah empowers us, to the ultimate paradox, to take this world, this earthy world, this materialistic world, the lowest of all the worlds, which appears to be the antithesis of everything that's holy and godly and good and wholesome and decent and moral and ethical, and to transform this world as we know it into a Torah world, into a wholesome world, into a godly world.